0: I'm Mark Lynch, director of the project on Middle East political science, and welcome to the final episode of the fall season of the Middle East political science podcast. On this week's episode, we talked to Abdul Majeed Hanoum about his extraordinary new book, The Invention of the Maghreb. We also talked to Hannes Baumann about his article, Avatars of Eurocentrism in International Political Economy. And Finally, we talked to Amar Shamayla, the Doha Institute, about recent trends in the Syrian regime and stability in Syria. Uh, Thanks for listening to our program, and we'll be back in January. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Majid Hanoum of the University of Kansas, author of the book, The Invention of the Maghreb Between Africa and the Middle East, which was published by Cambridge University Press, Amaji, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you for having
0: me. So tell us a little bit about the book and what motivated you to write it.
1: Yeah, uh, the book, I, I've been working on, on, on the region, I mean, on Algeria, but also on Morocco uh, since really early 90s. Of course, I was in school when I was a student in, in France, you know, uh, that was what I was interested in. So uh, at one point I felt that uh, uh, the reason, especially when I came to the United States, like you know uh, there is so much misunderstanding about the reason. And one of the biggest misunderstanding was uh, the idea that the Maghreb is, is a natural entity you know. Um, so because I've been doing work on Algeria and I was working mainly on, on colonial knowledge, but also the way that colonial knowledge, Has shaped our views about the region, but also about social relations and about languages and so forth. Really, the idea of uh, investigating this came natural to me. It's true that, like, at one point, like, early on, uh, I was reading the the book of Abdullah Laroui. It's called Mm L'Histoire du Maghreb. And early on in the introduction, he says that uh, what he really wanted to write was how the idea of the Maghreb came into being and how it came it became a natural entity uh, but he ended up writing sometimes he ended up writing a history of the maghreb which was really basically um, um, an interpretation of colonial historiography about the region so when when that, that was also like a very important uh, motivation for me so when i started you know investigating this this concept of the maghreb and they would go back to Abdul What I really noticed was that we had something completely different in mind when he said that we should, you know, look first for the idea of the Maghreb and how it was born and how it became natural. For him, like the idea of the Maghreb meant that the Maghreb itself has developed throughout history. So we need to look at that and see how, how it became what it is now, you know. So whereas like, when I started doing research on the topic, I realized that, of course, uh, the, the Maghreb is not same today, and definitively it was not same uh, even in the 14th century, and it was not same in the 9th century. It's a conception that has changed over time a lot. Sometimes, like Egypt was included in the Maghreb, sometimes uh, uh, Andalus was included in the Maghreb. Uh, sometimes Meli was introduced in the Maghreb and so forth. So it was a conception that, like, that has uh, changed all the time. And each time it has really something, you know, something so different from the previous conceptions uh, that have existed. So I told myself, basically what uh, we had in mind was something different from what I'm seeing here. What I'm seeing here is that when we talk about the Maghreb, it's a really a new a modern conception you know, that has emerged at one point, you know, during the colonial, you know, during the early colonial um, um, uh, occupation of Algeria. And that's basically what I I followed. So while I was doing that, that, uh, I realized that the study of the Maghreb is really relatively new, you know, Um, but at the same time, it's, 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 uh, it's an area for us that's very lively i mean like the younger people that work on the maghreb today and you know many of them produce like really like uh very very interesting scholarship and they said uh it really we need to start from from really the the, the, the basic which is basically we need to have very to, uh, to question the very concepts you know that we use about the Maghreb. of course you know that there is, uh, American Institute of Maghreb Studies, and you have all kinds of research right and left about you know about the maghreb so uh, therefore I said like you know um, looking into how the the concept you know the colonial but also of course modern uh, uh, of of the maghreb how into how it came into being it would really like you know um, Rechange as a matter of fact, it will redirect, you know, the study of the Maghreb today. You know, uh, I gave one of the examples that I gave, is uh, I gave a couple, as a matter of fact, you know, or maybe even several. Uh, one of them is the question of language. You know, that that scholars of the Maghreb feel very comfortable not knowing local language. You know, that's in Middle Eastern studies, has it, it, mm. it's unthinkable, you know. Uh, so why because they can they can. They can rely on French, you know, and they can dispose of Arabic and Amazigh languages like and so Right. So that's one of them. The other one is, is the concept of uh, Berber, Arab, that people would completely totally repeat, you know, uh, and critically, as a matter of fact. Uh, and it's, it, those are like a dichotomy that has a history, and its history is, is intimately connected with the construction of, or, you know, of the colonial Maghreb that we inherited you know, as a post-colonial, you know, discursive formation. So I would say yeah. uh, motivations for me to write
0: this book. So I absolutely want to come back to uh, both of those points. Um, why don't we start, though, uh, by going back, as you said, a little bit to the basics. And you put a tremendous amount of emphasis on, uh, on colonialism. And um, and specifically the French construction of the Maghreb as the French Maghreb. So tell us a little bit about that and how and why France constructed this concept
1: of a a region. Well, the the, the first uh, the first really like answer to this question is uh, France was present in 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 Algeria, and uh, its 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 presence in Algeria. Was very differently say, from its presence in Egypt. You know, uh, in Algeria, uh, soon it discovered, uh, you know, the Roman heritage, and France considered it itself to, you know, to be really the real here of of, of Rome, not Italy. I mean, it, it was uh, believed to be France, at least by the French. So, uh, therefore, that. It really kind of like made French scholars. I mean, they were really like you know diplomats. They were soldiers. They were like you know uh, you know uh, politicians. Made them focus, especially in the the, the, you know, the first decades of uh, French colonization of Algeria. They made them really focus on that on that on that significant part. That that coincided with the construction of France itself. Because France also was constructed. So that's part like constructing France with this, like you know, Greco-Christian heritage, you know, uh, Greco-Roman Christian heritage. So in Nigeria, I mean the the terrain was 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 similar, you know. And uh, the idea was very, very attractive because that would allow France, you know to kind of like develop itself, uh, develop Algeria as an extension uh, to France, you know. But at the same time, there was a problem because like the, what they were looking for and what they found actually, which is basically Rome in Algeria, but also existed eastward, you know, and and, uh, westward, that is, you know, uh, in Morocco and also in Algeria, uh, and also in, in Tunisia. So of course, I mean, they could find it also in Libya, but again, Libya was under, under mm-hmm. the Italian uh, colonization. Uh, Libya was kind of like added to the Maghreb in, in a liminal phase, you know. Um, but the, the, the core of the Maghreb, the way it was constructed you know, in colonial Algeria itself, included Morocco and, and, and Tunisia because there were extensions, not only extension in terms of geography, but in, in, in extensions in terms of you know history and in terms of archaeology and in terms of this entire like in you know, a symbolic tradition that was so important for the construction of france itself you know
0: and they very much wanted to naturalize this to not make it yeah. just seem like the borders of empire but to make yeah. it seem like something that was real
1: that's correct and we did naturalize it i mean that's why like even today people would say because I remember like when I posted this on, on Facebook, people would really ask, I mean, how can you possibly say the invention of the Maghreb? I mean, it has always existed. Like, you know, I mean, it's the Arab who gave the name Maghreb to the Maghreb, you know? But they don't know, I mean, like it was not all, only talking about name, even though as a matter of fact, the name itself, when we say Maghreb, you know, in French, is not same that when we say Al-Maghrib you know, in, in Arabic. Mm-hmm. When you say Al-Maghrib in, in Arabic, it means you know Morocco. When you say Maghreb in in French, it means the Maghreb that we are talking about right now. And so how did the French go about naturalizing
0: things? I mean, you have really a a lot of really fantastic detail about uh, the construction of atlases and cartography and mapping. And one part that I found extremely interesting was you traced the way that they talk about the desert to show uh-huh. that the uh, the French Sahel, the Maghreb Sahel is different from the Sahara um, to the east. Yeah, so yeah, tell us a little bit about that and how you researched yeah. that
1: and what you found. Well, I mean, the, 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 you're asking two questions. First one, how do you analyze realize that? Uh, uh, there is like a phenomenological approach in my book, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically the idea that like, there is the world out there, you know, the world. And then, uh there is a human mind that makes sense of it, you know meaning like uh all the objects you know entities that we think that they are outside of us uh, they are our own construction of them, you know um, and uh, the proof of that is that we have different conceptions of same objects you know uh if it were otherwise we would all see the same thing and we don't um so uh Therefore, like in the case of the French, because when when they got there, as I as I explained, they got there with some kind of knowledge, as a matter of fact, you know, that was pre-colonial, but was also like imperial in the sense that like you know, the empire, uh, you know, French empire and and British empire were already there before the, the, the occupation of Algiers. So, what 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 I try to do is really explain how the French really conceptualize, you know, I mean, the, because the, the term invention that they explain us in the introduction, it doesn't mean fabrication, it doesn't mean like lying, it doesn't mean uh, distortion, you know. What it means is that like we do this invention all the time. Like when I meet a new friend, pretty much I invent that, that friend of mine. You know, I, I, I have conceptions about who that person is and about his humor and about his thinking and, and so forth. So the first did pretty much the same, you know, except that they did it with 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 um, with uh, what I call actually like you know uh, uh, you know instruments instruments of power you know uh, that were quite quite powerful you know meaning like there's a difference between Bob you know constructing the identity of his friend figuring him out so to speak and then when you have like in a modern you know colonial power. With tremendous, like you know, uh, institutions and and uh, instruments of power and of knowledge, of course, that do that do those constructions. You know, uh, it's what we call basically like you now uh, scientific constructions. I mean, those, those uh, instruments they were based on 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 important, like in the uh, colonial mother institutions, you know, such as like you know, I don't know, like, uh, uh, universities, you know, such as archeological associations, you know, cartographic, aso- geographic as- associations and so forth. And therefore, like, you know, this, this, this nowadays, it really has, the, has the, 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 you know, the authority of truth as another fact, you know, because it's scientifically produced, uh, and the first people to believe that what, what they have constructed is true is the French themselves, you know, and of course, You know, the other side that, you know, I mean, that they talk about is, you know, the Algerians themselves, you know. Uh, The Algerians were exposed, you know, full force, you know, to this type of colonial knowledge. And they respond to it, as a matter of fact, it's very interesting to see how they kind of like, they contested this knowledge, you know. Oh, no, 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 it's not like this, it's like that, you know. But at the same time, like by, you know, uh, uh, responding to this, you know, it's first, first, the authority of colonial knowledge that you cannot ignore. It, you know you have to face. And second, when you respond to it, you are caught in its own logic. You can always, you can always uh, contest this part or that part or the Arab, the, the, such as one, so like one of the responses that, oh, like you know, Berbers are originally Arabs because the French would say the Berbers are originally Europeans. So mm-hmm. when when you can kind of come up with this like opposite uh, truth. That itself, it has the colonial, you know, uh, uh, colonial logic in it. The first thing that you have accepted willy-nilly is that there are Arabs and Berbers, which is like something that you know. I mean, um, yeah. that 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 needs to be analyzed, you know, to, to see what 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 an Arab means, like in the context of Morocco or Algeria, or what a Berber means, you know, and where the term Arab came and where the term Berber came. And, and so forth, you know. So that, that, entire, is,
0: that entire process is fascinating in the book, where you have the construction of Black Africa ooh. and then the, the emergence of this Arab-Berber dynamic within yeah. colonial ethnography yeah, that's, uh, that's very, very rich
1: in the book. Yeah, yeah, but but I also show that, like, there are um, casualties of this, of this invention as far as, like, you know, ethnic groups are concerned. I mean, like, the, the region was way too rich, to just be reduced to Arabs and Berbers, you know, uh, you have like other. I mean, this is even from the the, the, the point of view of some ethnographer and some sociologists such, such as Tocqueville. You know, there are other like you know ethnicities, or he called them race, you know, such as Koulougli that completely disappeared, like you know, from even the national discourse. You know, such as the Jews, actually, that were very present, like in Morocco, in Algeria, in Tunisia, like you know. Uh, and such as you know, uh, blacks you know they were also very very present as you know this is they were very present in 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 some colonial you know, representation uh, from the, the 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 population side. I'm sure that like it was much richer than what Pockville said in the sense that people most likely you know they did not identify themselves only as you know in relation to you know, to an ethnicity, but also the first, I mean, they identified themselves as Muslims. I mean, that was one of the major, in you know, mode of identification in pre-colonial um, uh, matter, so to speak. Uh, they identified themselves in relation to, you know, regions, you know, in relation to families, in relation to, you know, cities, and and and, and of course, I mean, in relation to also, you know, specific regions in, you in, there were like different modes of identifications on, on, on the local population um, side but on the colonial side again despite the fact that you have in you know, a few discourse including one as I said of Tocqueville that shows you know more diversity but the mainstream of co- the colonial discourse is the opposition between Arab and the Berber that has become a defining feature of the of, <laughs> of the Maghreb. as a matter of fact that's what defines the Maghreb, I mean, like it's this opposition that you cannot find in, in, in Egypt, for instance. Like in Egypt, I mean, you know, the racial dynamics and formations are completely uh, different in, in, in French discourse, but also in the British discourse, you know.
0: And then Arab-Berber becomes not only an ethnic difference, it becomes racialized as... Yeah, they become
1: uh, racialized, yeah. But at the same time, like the concept of race itself has changed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the history of French colonialism in the region. Because initially, I mean, like we have really that biological uh, definition that was based pretty much like naively, I would say, on skin color, you know, that they would say, okay, the Berber is white and the Arab is dark, you know. Uh, but then later on, like as the research advanced, uh, they came up with like, you know, and research advanced not only in the region of the Maghreb, even on on, on on the subject of race itself, like, you know, in, in France by new uh, Russian theorists, you know, such as, you know, Renaud, for instance, you know, such as uh, uh, Gabino was like really in that, that early kind of uh, conception of race, you know, but you have like new conceptions that came up. And one of them was precisely the, 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 because of also the development of historical linguistics, you have this new definition of race that, that defines race in relation to language, rather than in relation to you know to skin color. Uh, linguistic, uh, historical linguistic. I mean, one of the, its greatest discovery is what they call like family. You know, languages. You know, uh, like Semitic languages is a family language. Uh, Aryan languages. You know, and then they found out that well, I mean, there are some Aryans who are not Europeans. You know, believe mm-hmm. uh, I don't know in Persia at that time. So the, the conception of place itself changed and that had like a direct impact on, on, on the way the Berber was re- redefined again, you know, in, in, especially in the context of the fact of Morocco by, by uh, you know, after 1912 and so forth.
0: So at what point would you say that uh, the modern concept of the Maghreb becomes naturalized and uh, stops being
1: contested in this way? Uh, it's um, it's almost like asking the question about when is a baby formed. Like at what <laughs> point we say who we say uh, this baby is now a baby. You know, I mean, it's uh, a little bit like that because like it's a process. It's a it's a long process. As I said, like um, uh, already like in, by early eighteen um, uh, forties. Uh, in the work of the exploration scientific d'Algérie, you really i mean you could see that there is like you know, a conception of the maghreb you know uh that's emerging, you know you see it right there mm-hmm. and especially as a matter of fact because some of the scholars who were, who were involved in this project because the the the, the exploration scientific d'Algérie was was like modeled on on uh, the the description you know the, you know Exploration, the, the French colonial um, Napoleonic actually um, exploration. So what what you see there, you see already. I mean, like you, you see can the idea is coming. As I said, like you know, it's like having you know, the, the development of a baby. Um, so, but in the book I say the decisive, you know, dates You know. Uh, why do I say decided? Because before 1928, which is the decisive date in my opinion, uh, you do have the conception. You know, it's there. Um, but the names, uh, there's no name that has been uh, imposed yet. I mean, like the names that, that we found before before 1928, we do find. We do find even Maghreb actually, but it was not authoritative. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, we found North Africa, as a matter of fact, the term North Africa was more prevalent than, than the Maghreb. But we also find uh, Afrique Francaise, you know, uh, we found this term. We find even like, uh, you know, Afrique Blanche. Uh, this is just like, just I'm talking about just like the, you know, a couple of decades before, before 1928 uh, in 1928, because of the, this important figure of Goutier, you know that that, he, that who was like a geographer, but also he was a historian. Ironically, he speak not, he knew neither Arabic nor nor Berber, you know, and he had this like this uh, this overwhelming authority, you know, that was able to he was at the University of Algiers, uh, the University of Algiers or the Algiers or Faculty of Algiers, it was it used to be called. Uh, was like one of the most important French universities. I said French universities, you know, meaning like in in what was called France at that right. time, you know, and not only like in Algeria. I mean, for instance, Brodel taught there, and Brodel took so much from from uh, Gautier, his conception of Sahara from Gauti, his conception of the Maghreb from Gauthier. you know. So it was it was Gauthier who kind of really imposed, you know, this 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 name Maghreb. Some, some scholars tried to resist that, you know, and one of them is Charles-André Julien that's kept using the, word, you know, the term North Africa, you know. uh, but it, it didn't survive. I mean, what survived was the Maghreb, and one of the, the people who prolonged that, as a matter of fact, you know, especially in the post-colonial era, is Jacques Bert. All Jacques Bert's books about the Maghreb, they have the name Maghrebis whereas all the, the books by Charles, Charles-André Julien, you know, he kept saying North Africa, you know. So, so I would say again, like, you know, after 1928, you know, it was like, you know, the, the, the name was final, but also the conception itself was final, you know. Uh, final, meaning yeah. it still changes like as everything else, you know. But meaning like, uh, it's it still like emerged in the way that's very familiar to us today. You know and that's exactly yeah. what we inherited they said
0: so the the logic of separating the French Maghreb from uh, from Libya and um, and Egypt uh, mm-hmm. is is fairly clear in geopolitical terms yeah what was the logic of separating uh, the Maghreb from the rest of French Africa
1: well I mean uh, the um, <laughs> The, the, the Maghreb, I mean, was really constituted, um, and not only Algeria, because usually we say, oh, it's Algeria, but truth truth the matter when you really look at like, you know, the, the riding, you know, uh, including, like, with Lutani and, and- Yeah, Mauritania is the, the yeah. key example. Uh, Ma- Mauritania, I mean, it was still considered part of Morocco till 1962 when Morocco gave up uh, its claim. Uh, so the, this reason, it was so important to press because it's it's, it's backyard you know uh so the, the, that's really important you know it's really the mediterranean arsenal can remember this is the context when the concept of the mediterranean uh, became really a common currency i mean it emerged for the first time it was also invented in the 19th century but by 1940s thanks you know thanks to Baudelaire, you know in large part it has became you know so Separating that, we I mean like the, the Maghreb belongs to, uh, not the Maghreb, the, the Mediterranean is pretty much French, you know, in says sense that, or at least it's dominated by, you know, by the French from, because you talk about like Southern Mediterranean, you know, and of course, I mean, the, the, the Northern Mediterranean, which is, you know, France and, and mm-hmm. Spain, Portugal, and so forth. Uh, so there is this, I think this is one of the logic of, of you know, separating the Maghreb. Another separation was imposed to them, you know, because as I explained to the book in the book, I, I don't claim that oh, this was some kind of malicious or, I mean, this is like its work of, of, of construction that, like, that uh, colonialism did, but it including it did it at home, you know. So you have this, like, that instruments of knowledge that were at the disposal of, you know, politicians, diplomats, travelers, and so and, and of course, you know, scholars. And uh, you have also like uh, this kind of like uh, system of category that were available to them at that time. And one of them, one of, that's really so important that like we cannot um, uh, stress enough uh, the you know the racial categories. You know, and again like the racial categories, despite what I said earlier that language was it was like reused you know, to redefine uh, race. But still the, the uh, what was called phenotype, you know, I mean it was really important. So there is this distinction you know, in, in, in the eyes of you know, colonials between the Maghreb that was perceived as white, you know, uh, as uh, Gauthier said, but also uh, Julian in 1966. and then the rest that was not white, you know, uh, especially in, like uh, West Africa and beyond Sahara, that was, that was black, you know. So those for the French, I mean they thought they were like natural separations, you know. Uh, the same way I mean Baudet said that you know that the desert is you know, a natural separation, like it separates like you know the blacks from, from the whites, you know, the way that the Mediterranean separates Europe from Africa, you know. So there, there are things that 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 were imposed because like as I said, like when we have we, uh, we engage in this process of, of construction. Uh, we work with, with what we have, you know, I meaning like with the categories we have, the, with the discourse we have, with, the, with already with the perceptions that we have. And the color was, was a very important uh, uh, marker, you know, between these two. two. So, therefore, they really the region as, as quite distant, you know. But of course, um, the so called Maghreb, I mean, in terms of color, is very similar, if not, I don't think it's too easy. But then other markers in art right, right. and history, archaeology, and, 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 and
0: so forth. So I guess last question then is, you know, now that you've done this research, uh, written the book, you know, what, do, what do you think the major uh, impact should be on the way we study the Maghreb and what we, what we take away from our understandings of what the Maghreb is?
1: Well, I really hope that the first time, because like in Middle Eastern studies, you know, uh, the Maghreb is almost a poor parent, you know. I mean, like, uh, which is like something very interesting when you really look at it, like uh, a scholar of Egypt can almost dispose of knowledge of the Maghreb, you know. Uh, they can just really, I mean, not, of course, I mean, would always now Fano and, and the Algerian Revolution and, you know, uh, and, and so forth. But they wouldn't now they wouldn't have that, that knowledge of it which is like you know knowledge of modern Maghreb or let alone knowledge of the history of the region. You know. whereas the opposite is not true you know I mean a scholar like of, of the Maghreb you know a good one at least, uh, they would usually know you know the history of Egypt you know they would even know the history of the Middle East and all that. So there is this separation that I hope that my book will, Will at least like uh, encourage people to rethink it. You know, uh, why is the Maghreb separated from the Middle East? You know, there is like a clear separation. You know, in, in the mind of scars of the Middle East, but also in the mind of scars of stars of, of, um, of you know the so-called Maghreb. So that's the first one that I really hope that uh, scholars will look into. And then, uh, because as I said, like yeah. Uh, it's, it's not really considered the Middle East, but also it's not considered Africa, you know. Yet at the same time, it's like, because my book is not only addressed to Middle Eastern scholars and Maghreb scholars, it's also addressed to Africans, you know. So yeah, I want to that's what African, makes it so interesting. Yeah, I, relate, I mean, like, this is like, for God's sake, this is the reason that's comfortably sitting in North Africa, you know, along with Egypt, of course, you mm-hmm. know. So how come that it's separated from Egypt, and how come that? So we have to rethink that. I mean, those separations, as I said, I mean, they are, uh, they are new, they are, they are, they are, they are colonial, uh, and uh, we need to deconstruct them to, to be able to kind of like, uh, kind of have a better like, you know, uh, understanding of, of that entireism. So that's one, that's the, for me, I mean, this is really uh, important. Uh, the other one, precisely because I said that the, the the field of Maghreb study is really, is new, you know. Uh, we have the first generation. Uh, when you look at them, some of them, they came to the Maghreb almost by accident. You know, some of them, uh, they were not really invested like in, in the region the way uh, young scholars are today, you know. So the, 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 the field, I mean, like, it's just like three decades, maybe like you know, three decades, I would say. Like when I started, I mean, it was seen, you have know, like scholars, you know, that's like Waterbury. I mean, like, but he was also doing Mexico and he was doing Egypt. You have Clifford Gears what doing Indonesia and then he came by default to Morocco and so forth. So
2: whereas the younger
1: generation that that we have today, they are very invested in, in, in study of the reason. So therefore, I really like, you know, uh, want to, kind of like uh, ask questions, you know, that, that, that will help uh, to rethink the study of the region and rethink, for instance, the question of language, you know, why is it okay not to know Arabic when you study the Maghreb? I mean, when I say that, like, we have like authorities, I mean, like people whose names, it just overwhelms me. Of course, I will not mention anyone that don't know Arabic and they don't know Amadir, they don't know whatever other local language in the region. So I wanted to kind of like help, uh, discuss this question, I mean, the question of language, but also the question of like, as I said, like this dichotomy Arab-Berber, because we have the dichotomy that's colonial, and I show that, and also that same dichotomy, uh, in, uh, for, for a, a good number of reasons that we don't have time to get into here, uh, We're kind of like, you know, Adopted, uh, appropriated by Amazigh associations, you know, and what I have noticed, lucky like, you enough, from scholars who work on on so-called Berber population, you know, uh, because I said so-called because some people in the region do not the contest but including like uh, Amazigh Association, they contest the term Berber itself, you know, but you have scholars like you know, that that that's going to produce the discourse of Amazigh association, you know. Uh, we have to, Amazigh association, like I mean, those like, you know, and political, cultural associations. you know. They are not like an you know, academic associations, Like you know. So it's it's almost like, if you want to study the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, I'm not saying, you know, if you want to study the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you studied their conception of Islam, you know. At the same time, if you want to study Amazir Association, that's very legitimate you study their conception of what an Amazir is, you know, what Amazir languages are, and so forth. Um, you don't take the discourse of the Muslim Brotherhood on Islam as Islam, you know. Same way, you don't take the discourse of Amazir Association on Amazir as Amazir, you know this is just like a conception. I mean, like, you have a variety of conceptions, including one that are completely unexplored, like, you know, meaning whether the concept of um, Amazigh itself makes sense, you know, to uh, a population in the Atlas Mountains or in Kabilia or in Shawia and so forth, you know. So this is, I think, that, like, it's uh, very much, like, a kind of world that really (laughs) needs to be open um, to kind of, like, you know, to make us, like, you know, rethink, like, you know, um, what we are studying. To, to denaturalize
0: by going back yeah, to yeah, that's you know, that's colonial natural, origins.
1: Yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah, the
0: So, absolutely fascinating. Uh, we, we were speaking to uh, Majid Hanum about his uh, recent book, The Invention of the Maghreb. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Hannes Baumann of the University of Liverpool to talk about his new article, Avatars of Eurocentrism in International Political Economy Textbooks. just came out in the journal Politics. Hannes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mark. So tell us about this really interesting article.
2: Yeah, so it started uh, with kind of an observation uh, from my um research on on Lebanese political economy, post-war political economy uh, that uh, kind of found that you know we really have to look at the regional political economy to understand what's going on and and, and that's the big story about the uh, uh, about what happened with the current sort of crisis and collapse. Um, so I got interested in in international political economy but there wasn't really that much written on Middle East political economy and I found that also in my teaching um, I was teaching IP on the one hand and then Middle East political economy on the other hand, but sort of never the twain should meet. Um, and that's kind of where the article arose from. And then I just did a very simple thing. And I should say also this article is the starting point for a conversation. It's definitely not the end point. It's not the be all and end all of decolonizing the the, 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 the the discipline or anything. But for me, it was a way of thinking about where we are and how, you know, what the problems might, or the challenges might be with with IPE, um, and and where to go from here also in my own teaching, which is definitely not yet decolonized in any, you know, to a sufficient degree. So I looked at um, uh, the kind of, what I found to be the six most, um, most widely used IPE textbooks in the kind of Anglo American uh, Academy and I asked, uh, you know, to what extent they reproduce or challenge um, kind of Eurocentric depictions of the Middle East. Um, and of course- clear, you We're know, talking about general
0: IBE textbooks, not things exactly, that are specifically yeah, about the
2: Middle East. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, I mean, you know, a lot of people will have come uh, uh, across those, those texts that I cite um you know textbooks are kind of necessary evils that we use they but they also shape the discipline a lot you know they express some kind of common sense uh, and if something is absent or misrepresented in those textbooks that has uh, an influence on how we understand the discipline as well we can talk a little bit more about that if you want to work yeah, sure. uh, later
0: so tell me then uh, so you, you took these six uh, widely used textbooks mm-hmm. and um tell me what you did with them and what you found
2: well, I, I, what was really helpful was um, there's a, a, a large area of scholarship, um, of looking at American government textbooks uh, and looking at how they how they deal with um, um, Latinos, uh, African Americans, uh, LGBTQI plus, etc., uh, and kind of there was a kind of a range of instruments. So to look at absences of, of of, of these groups. So I did the same. I looked at absences or presence of the Middle East in the textbooks. Um, I looked at what they called ghettoization, right? So is, um, uh, is the Middle East only being um, cited in particular sections of the textbook when it's about war or about your know, negative things or you know, wh- where, where does it crop up? So that can be done you know, quite nicely sort of qualitatively uh, quantitatively with, with sort of uh, content analysis. And then I looked more qualitatively at, at biases and stereotypes, or, or kind of disregard for complexities of the Middle East in the way that it's being depicted, um, to the extent that it is depicted. Um, and so what I found, the, the first striking thing that I found was that in the kind of six textbooks that I looked into, five of them um, the Middle East was hardly covered at all so that's definitely a case for for absence and what that tells us is that um, it's not being taken into account in the story of the global political economy that these textbooks tell and I think that has quite a a, a, a dangerous or, or a, not dangerous but you know an unfortunate effect on the way that we understand the discipline, because it's the first time that students encounter IPE. And if they learn that the Middle East is irrelevant or or not worthy of study, they'll probably continue that. And there's, I came across this, um, this, this, this phrase of undone science, so science that we don't do because we don't, you know, in the foundational texts, we don't even encounter it. It's just not part of the discipline. And then we, we we don't engage with it. And I think there's a danger of that. And if we can, you know, do the Middle East instead, that I think that's really useful. And then I looked more qualitatively at the one textbook that was uh, looking at the Middle East, and it's not just about bringing the Middle East in. I think that's something that I learned from this process as well. It's also how we deal with it. Mm-hmm. So here we see that the Middle East was ghettoized, it was in one chapter. Um, And then it was treated, um, there was a a specific chapter about the Middle East. uh, And then the story that the chapter was telling about the Middle East was that it was explaining the failures of the Middle East. So in the Middle East, there's not enough democracy, there is not enough globalization, and there's too much war. And it's this exceptionalization that was, uh, 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 I think, quite, quite problematic uh, in the way that it was being depicted. Um, yeah, so, so, so those were the kind of, in a nutshell, the main findings.
0: So one of the things that really struck me about the article is that, um, you know, in my reading of a lot of the really great new critical political economy of the Middle East, um, that, uh, I think we've all been, uh, exposed to lately, people like Adam Hamia and Timothy Mitchell and so much, much great work is going on. They make this case for how central the Middle East has actually been to kind of the post-war, uh, international political economy in terms of finance, in terms of so many other things. And, um, so how, how do you think about that in terms of, uh, it being the Middle East being treated as a periphery when we who study the region increasingly see it as central?
2: Yeah, I think that's 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 one of the things it's not about bringing the Middle East in, but realizing that it's always been there. Right. Exactly. And, and that's that's a criticism, of course, that um, you have with other areas of the world as well um, that you have with Africa, for instance, international relations or, or you know, all, all sorts of other uh, areas. So I think um, those histories. Um, that you were telling us about um adam hania writing about markets and and the the gulf um, Lale Khalili's book as well about shipping um uh you know vitalis uh you know all, all these books they they give a different perspective that the middle east is not uh peripheral it's not exceptional it's actually at the center of the story um now i'm not making the case that oh this is the most important thing that you know you you that it necessarily always has to be at the center of the story. But what is really striking and really odd about IPE uh, in, in the way that it's being taught in these textbooks is that it's completely absent. And that's, that's, that's a, a major omission. Uh, and I think what Hania or, or Khalil or, or Vitalis are doing is they're not just bringing it in, they're actually uh, 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 kind of taking, if we want to call it decolonizing to the next step which is yeah to 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 emphasize that centrality,
0: but it's so fascinating to think about how differently you would tell the core IPE story mm-hmm. of this Anglo-American um, you know mm-hmm. post-war economy when you make things like oil and petrodollar recycling central.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, and I, I mean, sort of one of the sort of pioneers has been also Besma Momani. She's had uh, one uh, article uh, about. Um, uh, you know, about the U.S. dollar and, and, and the role of the Gulf in that. You know, these kind of studies have always been there, but I think there's a real momentum now. And Adam Hania also, uh, in Britain, we have the uh, BISA, the uh, International Studies Association and the IPE group. Uh, he won their, um, their book prize uh, two years ago. You know, so there's a recognition there that this needs to come into IPE uh, uh, and that's happening and that's a very healthy development.
0: So as you kind of think about uh, the the discipline of IPE and uh, and this uh, this notion of decolonizing it and and bringing it into the center, what what do you think we should be focusing on um, in terms of uh, trying to speak to our colleagues who work in uh, kind of this the non Middle East part of the discipline?
3: Mm,
2: yeah, um, I mean, I think there. There are different levels in which we can do that. We can kind of do it at a sort of more conventional level the, the stuff that the bread and butter stuff of IPE, um, you know, petrodollar recycling and its role in the global finance, even that has not been uh, recognized to the degree that it should be, right? But that's, that's you know, uh, the, the kind of bread and butter stuff. Uh, on the other hand, we can get to the other uh, extreme and look at IP in a very different way. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, scholarship now and also teaching resources on everyday IP, for instance, right? So globalization is not just produced by Coca-Cola and and, and, and its, uh, its, um, its headquarters. Uh, it's also being produced by you know what is happening in the periphery and i don't know anything from financial practices to consumer behavior to uh, you know all sorts of you know to garbage and how you know how that is being that's that's one of my interests with with lebanon um at the moment you know how garbage is being recycled uh shipped across the world so we can think of all sorts of mundane seemingly mundane areas and so there's a meeting point here um you know beyond telling those histories of global you know with the with a capital g uh we can also think about this everyday ipe and that's a good way of bringing in uh the middle east how the global is made um you know not just in a in kind of the central uh commanding heights of new york or or london but how it's being made in you know dubai of course but also in i don't know uh, Rabat Casablanca or, 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 or you know rural Syria. And so you have a,
0: a, a, a line uh, in the middle of the article with think, which I think is familiar to uh, many of us who work in the field where you say why should we have to justify there being a case on the Middle East or a chapter on the Middle East? could, could,
2: could you feel that this, could <laughs> could you feel the frustration there Mark? <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think I think I wanted to turn that around because of course, when I sent it off, and I think everyone who, who sends off um, a, a, an article for review, especially I think in IP, but also in security studies, and say, and it's not about you know um, European uh, international political economy or or American finance, it's about you know a peripheral area. You always have to justify yourself in a way that I think some of these areas that are seen as core don't have to. And I, I wanted to turn that around and wanted to, to show with, you know, uh, almost, you know, 450 something million uh, people, you know, that is a story that we need to tell just for, for the sake of the, um, uh, yeah. you know, inhabitants of the area, but also, um, you know, because we have all these histories now.
0: So these, these global histories of shipping and finance and petrodollar recycling and all, all that we were talking about before.
2: Yeah yeah exactly so so these uh present uh, a kind of different perspective and i think what i want what is, is is important is to shift also uh the practices in for instance reviewing uh that you know the the onus on justifying your case study for instance uh is 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 not just you know why are we talking about this area that we know nothing about and that we don't care about in the in the discipline very much but you know, why haven't we heard about this area so far? Why is it being ignored? And and with that attitude, I think um, that can throw us up some really interesting questions also for uh, for the for the published discipline and not just for the teaching and the textbooks.
0: Well, great. We've been talking to Hannes Baumann about uh, IPE textbooks. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. <laughs> This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's Topics segment, we're joined by Amar Shamailah of the Doha Institute uh, and a scholar of, Syri- of Syria and the Syrian regime. Amar, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: So uh, we wanted to talk to you because we've been paying attention to things that have been developing in Syria uh, since the end of the active war and uh, economic crisis, uh, the various Efforts that we've seen by the Syrian regime to consolidate itself and to seek reconstruction assistance. And you've been studying the nature of the Assad regime and its adaptations over the years for quite some time. Uh, can, what can you tell us about how the Syrian regime has adapted to the, you know, the, the 10 years of civil war and kind of the challenges that it faces today?
3: Uh, yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a great question. Um, in, in my view, uh, the Syrian regime has proven to be capable of adaptation fairly quickly to uh, the various different sort of circumstances that have been, uh, that, you know, or strain that it's been placed under. Uh, so, you know, if we go back uh, in time to Hafez al-Assad, uh, right? We, we see, uh, you know, at least at the end of his reign, the last 13 years or so, a, a degree of stability, um, uh, even with, you know, changes in, in terms of international dynamics, uh, the fall of the, the Soviet Union and, and, and uh, such. We see some changes internally occurring in Syria due to this, but it tends to be relatively stable in terms of its trajectory, in terms of, you know, the, the faces that are involved in governance. Uh, with the Syrian regime, the transition to Bashar al-Assad, uh, led to a pretty uh, um, uh, a, a, a pretty drastic change in terms of the the uh, basically the stability of the regime itself, the stability of of what we think of as the government in terms of the cabinet and the individuals who are involved, um, and so and yet that. Lack of stability doesn't necessarily mean a lack of stability in terms of the al-Assad's position, right? Uh, some of this has to do with, you know, sort of feeling out the circumstances, getting the right people in place. With the Syrian civil war, uh, there's obviously a, a, a fairly large challenge to the regime, and it's very often posed as people just coming from you know, outside of the regime, but there were some important individuals from within the regime who were involved as well, right? And so there's some tension within the regime as well uh, from fairly early on.
0: So let's talk a little bit about that. Who were the elements within the regime who maybe took advantage of the opening created by the Civil War? What happened to them? How did Assad manage to navigate these internal challenges?
3: Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of navigating the, the internal challenges, there's a bit of a, of a sort of closing of ranks uh, within Syria. Uh, in terms of external challengers, some of them uh, are internal challengers uh, who kind of joined forces uh, with the op- uh, opposition uh, or supported the opposition, whether vocally or, or not initially, um, uh, you know, uh, they tended to be associated what is termed the old guard. I think that's a bit of a misnomer, but, you know, it, do, it does provide a sort of uh, description of a certain group or certain element within the regime that was very heavily tied to uh, the status quo under Hafez al-Assad and the rapid changes perhaps uh, created a, an environment that wasn't necessarily uh, the best uh, for them or, or, you know, at least with some deleterious change. Uh, you know, I think this story can best be told sort of through the, the example. Example of, of a particular uh, individual, and, and that particular individual, I think, is Firasat Loss who I think is a really interesting figure uh, during this, this period of time under Bashar al-Assad, and then after the, the civil uh, after the civil war begins, or after the really the, the protests begin. Uh, in that, you know, he's a very successful businessman. Uh, he has his company, uh, Mass, um, uh, that is, uh, you know, re- a relatively well-positioned in an environment where uh, perhaps there aren't very many power players. Um, and it, for Fidasa Plus, though, uh, he's still, uh, you know, a, a secondary figure within this, uh, you know, Syrian economy, not, not among the, the core echelon of elites. And so, uh, Firas the son of Mustafa Atlas, former uh, uh, Minister of Defense and longtime Hafez al-Assad uh, uh, ally, um, he, uh, you know, if you take a look at his employees, their actions sort of early on in the protests, uh, you know they're out there protesting. They're out there supporting the, the opposition fairly early on. Although it's only later on where he becomes explicitly tied to the opposition. Um, and so you see, the, uh, you know Bashar al-Assad navigating this this situation by essentially further their, furthering their marginalization within uh, the regime. And ultimately, most of these entities are very reliant on the regime itself, right? Um, within the Syrian context. And so by marginalizing them from uh, within the regime, uh, you know they, they lose their power, they end up sort of gravitating more into the opposition's orbits um, uh, where um, honestly, it's a little bit hard for them to gain any traction because these are core elements of the regime that were perceived fairly negatively by many elements within the opposition, right? So um, so uh, the fact uh, that they are so tied to the regime made it very hard for the opposition uh, to trust them. And so okay, they, some they people, some people
0: have by- argued that, that actually this helped Assad by kind of identifying the weak links within his regime,
3: uh, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, in, during this uh, period of time, you know, you have this outflow of perhaps people who are not uh, necessarily core supporters, some of whom were perceived as core supporters, some of whom were perceived as very closely tied uh, to, ha- uh, to Bashar al-Assad, some of whom were actually not, um, you know, sort of uh, necessarily uh, viewed as Hafiz al-Assad's men, uh, but, you know, end up, uh, end up uh, uh, leaving the regime. Um, and so you have a, 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 this position uh, that where Bashar al-Assad, perhaps, you know, not even realizing it, has an opportunity to, to sort of clean house uh, and ensure that the people who are, you know, core members of the regime who are in positions of power uh, are loyalists, um, uh, you know, because of this strain. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I would agree with that perspective that this, that this helped the regime to some extent.
0: So I'm thinking about an article that you wrote a little while back, where you talked about the Rami Makhlouf saga, um, and uh, you know, kind of how does that fit in with this kind of internal regime dynamics you're describing?
3: So, you know, one of the things that's interesting about you know that sort of project and thinking about that particular project was that I, you know, I was thinking about how how much change was occurring within the war. And one of the things that I, I realized and hadn't thought about until I started working on the project was that that change, at least within the government, was uh, fairly continuous. Uh, it was happening fairly often. What was more stable and what had been uh, somewhat, at least in terms of its trajectory, um, again, because there were changes that were be- that were taking place, uh, was the Syrian economy. Um, You know, this opening up of the Syrian economy takes it in a trajectory where you essentially have the the creation of an economy that is almost hierarchically organized uh, with Rami Makhlouf and Sham Holdings at the top, right? You have, you know, a a clear power player who almost holds a veto power over who can participate in large scale endeavors. When the Syrian civil war happens, uh, you end up getting uh, new individuals entering into. The fold uh, economically. Some of this is, is due to the strain, the economic strain that the regime is put under. Some of it is due to, you know, the, the, the uh, need to evade sanctions. Uh, and so you have a lot of people coming from the uh, export import industry and becoming fairly powerful during this period of time, but you get a diversifi- uh, diversification of the elites. Um, and this, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, weakens uh, Rami Makhlouf. Uh, some of it was overstated in terms of his weakness. I think early on, so very quickly, uh, you have Syrians talking about, oh, Rami Makhlouf is not the person that you know uh, is not the, uh, you know is not uh, powerful anymore. This other person is powerful, but really, Rami Makhlouf stays powerful for a, a fairly long time, although in an environment where he's less powerful uh, than he was relative to other elites um, for a while. Uh, with the action that was taken uh, by the Syrian regime uh, against Syriatel and against Rami Makhlouf's uh, various different sort of uh, both charitable and uh, coercive and and, uh, economic endeavors um, uh, is that uh, it's really the beginning of an attempt in the post sort of, you know, I don't want to say the post-war period, but really in the period where, you know, at least they have, strengthen their position uh, within a, a part of the territory of Syria, um, you have the idea that, okay, we need to rein in some of the power players uh, that are involved. Some of the, the, this drive is economic, right? Um, very, very recently, people have been sort of expressing this in the sense that it's, you know, a, grab, a, a cash grab by the regime. And certainly that is playing a role because they are under severe economic strain. But some of this is more than a cash grab, right? When you look at uh, what occurred with Syriatel, it was then... Essentially, destroying Rami Mahlouf's empire, taking over Syria Tel for themselves, and making sure that it's an entity that they can easily control. Now, when we put this into context with what's occurring in the telecommunications industry in general, when you look at you know what recently happened with MTN uh, Syria as well, and you know that uh, essentially MTN being uh, being forced out of Syria, um, you know that and and put under you know the the um, uh, essentially, uh, the the authority of uh, of, of uh, Assad loyalists, or the sort of new the new sort of discussion, is now the Ibrahim family. Uh, as I've discussed before, this is constantly changing. So, uh, but uh, you you see an an attempt to sort of take control of this industry. It seems to be something beyond simply a cash grab. But when you look at the broader Syrian economy. Uh, they're going after, you know, medium scale enterprises as well. Um, uh, and so, you know, there is an element where it is, you know, we are under economic strain. Uh, these people have, you know, benefited from our presence. Sure, they've helped us out, but now it's, you know, time for them to, to pay their dues. Um, and so both of those elements are, are seem to be playing a role.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about that. You know, with the degree of economic crisis uh, in Syria right now and the international sanctions on the Assad regime, there's kind of two ways that you could think about it. You could see this as being paving the road towards some kind of uprising, renewed uprising against Assad in the face of deprivation, or you could see it more along the Saddam Hussein model where it actually strengthens the state while impoverishing potential opponents. How do you read the the impact of economic crisis on the, on how the Syrian regime is constituted now?
3: So um, my opinion has been shifting uh, slightly, and it's, it relates to international dynamics. It relates to uh, the sort of. What 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 the Syrian regime uh, likely looks at as the sort of light at the end of the tunnel with, you know, um, uh, moves by Arab states to foster closer relations now, Um, even, uh, you know, in the Western world, we're seeing sort of uh, a little bit of loosening up in terms of sanctions, even with the United States, uh, with OFAC recently and their decision related to NGOs. Um, and allowing some room for NGO uh, for, for uh, funding of NGOs uh, operating in Syria and so I think uh, at this point in time uh, you know for a while there was a strain that was occurring that, that could have potentially led to something destabilizing at, at this moment uh, my sense is that uh, the Syrian regime doesn't view any particular, Element within Syria as that threatening uh, right now, um, uh, and, and and so they're behaving in a bit of a more predatory manner uh, very recently. You know, with even if we look at you know within the last four or five months, uh, they've they've kicked it up uh, a notch. Um, And so, you know, I, my sense is, is that, yes, there is a threat and the threat largely lies within, you know, the core sort of constituency of regime supporters and elites. Uh, But I feel as though uh, the building of closer ties with, you know, the foreign, uh, with, uh, with other states, the building of economic relations with other states uh, is, is adding to, you know, the of the potential stability of the regime in the future, um, and it, it should be interesting to see, you know, sort of what sort of relationships merge between the elites themselves and these states, and whether the Syrian regime allows for the fostering of these sort of closer ties, uh, uh, you know, between these elites, because that that ultimately uh, could lead to something destabilizing.
0: So some people argue that at the end of the day, Iran is the one that calls the shots now, and that their presence inside of Syria is, you know, some kind of like permanent, fixed, and maybe even determinative political presence. Um, and yet, you you speak about the Syrian regime as having a great deal of autonomy in terms of uh, its strategic decision making. How do you think about that in terms of? Uh, Syria's relations with iran and and what might what it might mean if they rebuild their relations with the Gulf and with the Arab world?
3: Syria's um, ultimately and in, in my reading and and people might disagree uh, has but Syria is ultimately about balancing different states against one another, different elements with one another and there's the strategic uh, um, uh, capacity for doing so has proven to be fairly fairly uh, uh, fairly strong, uh, and this is this is not just you know now this is uh, you know there's sort of long history uh, you know stretching back to Hafez al Assad their ability to sort of play off different uh, entities against one another within Syria for much of the war uh, or at least from 2015 on uh, you had this sort of shift between in in serious focus or they're they're sort of hinting at leaning towards Iran more at certain times. hints that they're leaning more towards Russia at other times and they they sort of played Iran and Russia off of one another, to some extent, Um, and and you know that was one of the, the core, you know elements of, the, of their strategy for survival. Um, and now, you know, with with uh, building of closer relations with uh, the Emirat, um, uh, building of closer relations with the Gulf in, in general, uh, you know, aside from uh, perhaps Qatar, uh, you're getting, uh, um, uh, you know, the greater possibility of saying, well, if we're not, go- if you're not going to help us with this, we can just Go to them. We we have them, uh, you know, uh, willing to to invest here. that really We have them willing to create to foster these relationships here, uh, and so uh, I see this as ultimately feeding into uh, Syria's strategy. I know you know things between uh, Iran and uh, and uh, Saudi have sort of heated up more recently. But if we go back to Syria, uh, you know, pre-war. Um, There was a heavy sort of element of, you know, there was a sort of, um, if, if, uh, so if we go back to Syria pre-war, you know, there was a a strong push for building closer economic relations with the Gulf, um, even as, you know, the relationship between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran wasn't necessarily uh, particularly uh, um, amicable. Uh, right, and so, and Iran is also, you know, through, it Iran is also somewhat pragmatic, right, in terms of its understanding that, you know, at times, uh, states where, that have good relations with it will need to cooperate with other states in order to sort of build that, good you know, stability and be able to maintain that, their role, and so, um uh, I see them building uh, a, a relatively strong relationship uh, with the Emirat in the future um, and trying to uh, push for, for greater relations with them, uh, working more closely with Jordan as well. Uh, and uh, we've seen that, that, uh, uh, that uptick. Uh, and you know, I'm, not, I'm not so sure about this, but I would guess that the, the relationship with Saudi will improve, but not necessarily to the extent that it improves with the Emirates.
0: And I guess, you know, the, if that does happen, it still doesn't look like there's this uh, groundswell of massive reconstruction cash that's likely to flow in, into the country. It doesn't seem to be a rescue, you know, ship on the horizon.
3: No. I, and, you know, the, the global context that they find that Syria finds itself in is, is a relatively difficult one, um, uh, uh, you know, with the, the situation in Lebanon as it currently is uh with uh you know the the global pandemic worries uh you know across different parts of the region of potentially you know economic decline uh in the in the near future we look at at uh, some of the you know uh uh the gulf states also experiencing some sort of worry about their economic trajectory um uh, and so i think that there is you know that this is a bit of a difficult context it's also You know, one where Syria, I don't think has, in terms of rebuilding, has actually you know implemented a very strong strategy. And I I mentioned this before; we were talking about you know Syriatel. Uh, With Syriatel, you know, very you know you know with their sort of domination of the telecommunications industry that was created in part by kicking out a foreign entity uh, and taking over. Um, right, you know, you have a MTN having a seventy-five percent stake, uh, you know, in in MTN Syria, and then being essentially, you know, told, you know, tough luck, mm-hmm. uh, get out. Um, uh, it's a tough environment for people to trust. Um, I, you know, and this is more sort of, you know, guesswork um, here, but. With regards to states like the Emirates, uh, there, I I think that there is, or, or I think that there is a greater opportunity for them to trust their investment in Syria in the future, uh, and the reason being that there is a significant amount of Syrian elite money tied up in the Emirates as well. Um, And so I think that kind of connection creates an avenue for, you know, not necessarily trust, but leverage that allows them to potentially invest in the Syrian economy. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, there is a potential in the future, uh, but I think, you know, when we look at what's, what the Assad regime has done during this period of time, in terms of it's, you know, going after businesses, it's not a favorable environment for investment, right? Um, and so that that is particularly large scale investment and the kind that could, you know, have a, a, a large impact on the economy.
0: Well, great. Thanks. We've been speaking with Hamash Maila, at the Doha Institute. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us.
3: Thank you very much, Mark.